Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary Media. This week I spoke with Alif Shafak. Alif is an author, an academic who's published 17 books. She's an activist on women's rights, minority rights, freedom of speech. She also writes and speaks about a range of issues including global and cultural politics, the future of Europe, Turkey and the Middle East, democracy and pluralism. In 2017 she was chosen by Politico among the 12 people that will give you a much needed lift of the heart and by Jove my heart soared to speak with her. Thanks for all your comments on last week's podcast with Scarlett, Scarlett Curtis, I mean. Uh, Alexander, Alexander Wild Sart said, just listen to this podcast with Scarlett Curtis, found it amazing that Scarlett wasn't a seething mass of bitterness at her medical injustice. Did you ever get any apologies, by the way? Well, you can ask Scar yourself. Uh, what Russell said about it being her path to understanding a bigger picture really resonated. Inspiring, as all these podcasts are so far. Newfound love affair with Ross Kemp after last week, and I want Brené and Karamo to adopt me. Well, get in line, baby. Collective truths. There is a light about her. She's going to do amazing things. Oh, that's really nice. What a lovely comment. A down. I listened to this yesterday and was intrigued by the talk about crystals. I've also been feeling the urge to buy crystals. We all get it, dear. But I don't know if it's spiritual or if it's something else capitalism has found to sell people who are looking for deeper meaning rather than acquiring more commodities. Well, you know, anything that we purchase will be purchased throughout pre-existing economic structures. Unless you can set up some trade and barter system, then you, you might be all right. You can't buy spiritualism, good point. But I often get adverts for crystals that can unblock your chakras. Or my chakras, they're all over the gaff. Or something along those lines. Is this desire for crystals genuine or just another seed of want planted in us? I might mail order a couple and see how I feel. You're absolutely lovely, you. I mean, look, it's nice, isn't it, to have some symbols of our connection to the unknowable. Could be a crystal, could be a crucifix. Could be some private place of pagan worship. Could be a pebble that you plant somewhere on ground all i'm saying is our knowledge is limited but information and knowledge themselves are limitless okay so um let's get in this never mind what i think because uh what am i after all other than a man with quite nice eyebrows let's find out what other people think before you go though into the world of alif shafak i want you to subscribe to my youtube channel for them spiritual videos i do they're getting very good at the moment um, and please subscribe and click that bell so I can just start ringing away on your phone. I'm sure you haven't got enough in your life irritating you. What you need is a clanging bell every time I have a feeling or emotion. We check the comments on each video, all right? So tell me what you want to see more of. And could you calm down the death threats just a little bit? Just a little bit. There's no, you can death threaten me. I don't, I don't mind. Sign up to my mailing list uh, on russellbrand.com and you'll be the first to be told about my upcoming shows. I'm doing very intimate shows and you'll receive exclusive content not found on my social media or YouTube channel. Check out my comedy special Rebirth on Netflix if you want to. And if you want to get in touch on social media, at Rusty Rockets, hashtag under the skin or Instagram at Russell Brand. Now let's get into Alif Shafak. Let's do this. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful that's, route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand Under the Skin. Thank you very much for coming to speak to me, Elif. I'm very excited to speak with you. These are the first... Uh, was it all right, your journey here? You're quite comfortable? Yes, it was a very nice journey, actually. It's a very nice region. I, I, I liked it. You seem um, to occupy a cultural space that is 
an interesting nexus between mysticism and pragmatism and even on meeting you it seems that this is the place that you occupy is that a difficult thing to be engaged with, with the mystical and ethereal realms while being a practical person and a communicator well i think i only think of myself as a storyteller i'm someone who's interested in stories i'm equally interested in silences um well don't start doing that in here this is an audio medium yeah <laughs> no i won't be silent no n not at all but the reason why i'm saying this is because when i look at my own childhood maybe part of the answer lies there i was born in strasbourg in france um, and the first house that I was brought to was full of immigrants, leftist students, smoking gouloirs and reading Althusser, Jean-Paul Sartre, but not so much Simone de Beauvoir, talking about revolution. So that was the first environment. But then my parents got separated and my father stayed in France and my mother brought me to Turkey, to Ankara. For her, it was motherland. For me, it was a new country. And we came to my maternal grandmother's house. And this was in a very, very conservative neighborhood. And back then, my mom, because she had dropped out of university, she had become now a young divorcee, but she didn't have a diploma, not a career, no choices or not a, no money in life. And it was my maternal grandmother who said, no, actually, my daughter should go back to university. She should have a diploma. She should have choices because young divorcees are immediately married off to someone older in very conservative environments. So my mom went back to university. Um, she became a teacher and then she became a diplomat. She and I traveled a lot. But the first years of my early life, I was raised by a maternal grandmother who was quite spiritual, if I may put it this way. Um, and uh, her house was full of magic stories, oral stories, but I'm talking about late 1970s Turkey. So this was a time of political violence. People were being killed on the streets. Um, bombs would explode every day. And I remember very vividly sitting by the window as a child and thinking about the world outside the window, but also somehow feeling tuned into the world inside the house. And maybe in my novels, I still do that. So my novels are political, but I think there's also room for spirituality in a non-religious way. What were the stories your grandmother was telling you? It was mostly um, the stories of the, of the Middle East, this oral culture that sometimes I think written culture looks down upon. Uh, I, I, I never did. I always felt curious about that very vivid, very colorful world storyland. So these are like legends, tales, riddles that are transmitted from one generation to the next. Not necessarily all of them written, but I love, it's a different way of storytelling, mostly like stories within stories, circles within circles. And there's a part of me that, that likes that culture. I'm fascinated to understand what these folk tales may encompass, what kind of narratives and archetypes we would find there because my immediate assumption with folk art and oral folk culture 
is that it's a point of access to the universal. But immediately, of course, I have to understand that this is happening in Turkey, that peculiar uh, to, uh, you know, to a, a European, a sort of Northern European person, um, uh, place on the other side of a dividing line. So what what are these tales? Are the, where are they compiled? What What is it that's being passed on to you? And in your opinion, it... Is there a universalism that transcends the assumed differences that cross that, you know, that line of what Saeed would call Occidentalism? Yeah. Well, I think Turkey is interesting in that sense because it's very much a threshold country, isn't it? Like between East and West, it is a place of conflicts. But I think we also have collective amnesia in Turkey, even though we have a rich history. I, however so many times for various reasons i felt a bit like the other or outsider insider very much on the edge of the society um, i was an only child i was a solitary child and i thought life was very boring and that's how i started writing fiction so if turkey is on the periphery of europe i have often felt on the edge of that country myself and over the years i lived in different countries always back and forth um, I'm an Istanbulite. I feel very attached to Istanbul. Uh, but I also believe that it's possible to have multiple belongings. So there's a part of me that's very attached to the Aegean, the Balkans. Put me next to a Greek author. I have a lot in common. Or someone coming from Bulgaria, Romania, you know. Um, there are elements in my soul from the Middle East. I am a European by birth by choice, the, the values that I share. Over the years, I've become a Londoner and a British citizen. And despite what Theresa May says, I would like to think of myself as a citizen of the world. The reason why I'm saying this is because when you have multiple belongings, and I think we all have multiple belongings in different ways, um, you learn from multiple sources. So definitely, the years I spent with my grandmother, oral storytelling, that left an impact on me, but also, the, the, the books that I've read over the years, somehow I think the human mind mixes all of that. And that's the beauty of diversity. Yes, I suppose it is. So you've never found it easy to categorize yourself in a static way, it seems to you, like an amorphous and mobile thing. Yes, and I think water is always a better metaphor when we talk about ourselves um, I've never been comfortable with identity politics. I <clears throat> don't think it's very progressive. It can be where we start off, but in my opinion, it can't be where we end up. So there's a part of me that wants to go beyond identity politics and always emphasize multiplicity, multiple belongings. If I may give an example, just to clarify, I lived in Boston for a while, and while I was there, I was um, studying in the archives women, African-American women's movement of 1960s, 1970s, you know, what were they saying, what were their struggles like, and it left a big impact on me because when you read their work, because many of them were women of color, they were on the receiving end of racism. Because they were women, they knew how sexism or misogyny worked. Um, because many of them were LGBTQ members, they knew how homophobia worked or transphobia worked. And again, because many of them came from disadvantaged backgrounds, they knew how class inequality worked. So when they talk about power, they talk about power in a much more nuanced way than we do sometimes today. 
And when they talk about themselves, there's always this emphasis on multiplicity. When you read people like Audre Lorde, or I see the same thing in James Baldwin as well, for instance. But when you look at Audre Lorde, she says, I'm a mother, um, I'm a poet, I'm a writer, I'm black, I'm a woman, uh, I'm lesbian, I'm this and that, and I'm many more things you might not be able to see at first glance. So in a way, these people were saying, I contain multitudes, like Walt Whitman poem, right? And I am worried that in today's progressive movement, we have forgotten to say, I contain multitudes, because we're so obsessed with identity politics today. There's quite a lot there to deal with, isn't there? So like when when you're talking about uh, Audre Lorde, and uh, this movement of African-American uh, female writers, you say that their approach to power is nuanced. Why? Because you're, uh, why? Because it's much more complex. There are layers, layers of power. And of course, one of the crucial things that feminisms of previous generations have taught us is that politics is not only about political parties, it's not only about politicians, parliament, there is politics wherever there's power, right? So there's also politics in our personal lives, in our kitchens, in our family conversations. And that way of thinking about politics in a broader context, I think is very helpful for us to also understand how power structures work in our daily lives, in our relationships. I find all of that very progressive. But I think my point is today we have forgotten that. Because today, unfortunately, we live in the age of tribes and tribalisms. And sometimes we make the mistake of thinking that the answer to one kind of tribe is forming another tribe of our own. And I find that problematic. So I think there's a part of me that's longing to go beyond tribes. And so maybe in my heart, I am a humanist. I, li I like humanism. And I think we need a radical loud, bold, confident humanism today in a world that's becoming increasingly polarized and tribalistic. How do you think that you introduce those narratives when the discourse has become so polarized and entrenched when people find it hard to look beyond the internal multiplicities, particularly groups such as those listed have found it hard to achieve assumed equality or at least the right to have a voice within our existing power structures how do you think we can advance the conversation beyond intersectional identitarian politics well it's the it's very sad but it's the year 2019 and we have to say this again and again i think inequality has to be at the center of all of our debates talks it's not a side issue, it's not a footnote, and uh, it's very crucial. And when I say inequality, I'm not only talking about economic inequality, that's incredibly important, but I'm also talking about um, perceptions, emotions, anxieties. So economic anxiety is also part of it. Cultural anxiety, demographic anxiety, there are lots of things we need to openly, frankly talk about. So my point is, we have lots of problems, and these problems have been brewing under the surface for a very, very long time. Um, but populism or populist nationalism, these are not the answer. So in other words, I think 
populism is the fake answer to some very real problems. The problems are real, but it's not true that populism is going to solve them. But if I may take you back in time a little bit, you will remember there was a there was a moment in history when we were so optimistic, right? Full of optimism, full of confidence. So I'm talking about late 1990s, early 2000s, because the Berlin Wall had come down, the Soviet Union was no more. And there was this assumption, both in academia and media, that from now on, it was the triumph of liberal democracy. History could move only in one direction, linear, progressive. And that meant um, that the citizens of advanced democracies didn't really have to worry that much because they had already achieved equality for the most part. And it was those other backward countries that had to catch up with the rest of the world. And I think back then, the biggest optimists were techno-optimists or tech-optimists. Every now and then, they would come from Silicon Valley and tell us about their major achievements. And I followed the, those debates because they projected that kind of optimism mostly to the part of the world where I come from, the Middle East. So when the rebellions happened in Iran, it was called Twitter rebellion. There were New York Times columnists saying, from now on, the youth in Iran will be firing tweets to topple down dictators. When the Arab Spring started, there was so much optimism and confidence in digital technologies that people thought Facebook was going to bring democracy to the entire region. And in fact, such was the extent of the optimism that a young Egyptian couple named their newborn baby daughter Facebook. Around those days, a family in Israel they named their third child, again to honor Facebook, they named their third child Like. Now, think about their lives. Facebook in Egypt and Like in Israel, these two children, they're almost teenagers now. How are their lives like today? Because fast forward, I think we have entered the age of pessimism, anxiety, anger. There's a lot of frustration. And the optimistic predictions of 2000s did not really take place. So we, we, the mood has completely changed today. And I think we honestly need to talk about inequality. Um, but as I said, populism is not the answer. Those are lovely stories about um, Facebook and like living their lives, presumably entangled in complex trademark lawsuits every time they type their name into their social media sites. Um, it's, it's, in retrospect, it's clear to see that it was unlikely that tech organisations fated to become part of the power structures that it momentarily seemed they may overthrow could be anything other than further fortification of existing power structures. It seems mad to consider that Facebook would be anything other than an, a, a pillar of the establishment or that the, the cyberspace would in any could wouldn't end up resembling other spaces in terms of how it is dominated, how it is controlled, and how power operates. In a sense, when I think about the time that you described and its apparent optimism, I feel that to engage with that optimism, certain narrative, many narrative strands would have to be neglected, many of which are coming to fruition now. 
I feel like the you know the media and the academic establishments that you mentioned expected the population to perform cultural about turns rather too rapidly when it comes to ideas about nation, ideas about tribe, ideas about inclusion and exclusion, ideas around acceptable language, around gender and civil rights. And for it seems to me, at least, Alif, that many of the apparent aberrations that we're experiencing politically, the rise of nationalism, the rise of populism, Trump, Brexit, etc., etc., are merely the overt expression of long-stoked tensions and that without significant structural change, there's no way of redressing that. And it isn't enough, as as you have already said, to entrench ourselves further in not I wouldn't diminish the participants in these movements but I've heard civil rights activists say before that civil rights issues whilst important to the participants in terms of the addressing equality do not significantly alter power structures which are underwritten economically well don't you think we we, we need a new language we need a new approach And sometimes, to be honest, it pisses me off that populist demagogues are doing a better job in terms of addressing people's emotions than sometimes their liberal uh, counterparts. We, I'm not underestimating the importance of reason, logic, but I think we need to put more emotional intelligence on the table. Um, and, And we really need a new language. My background is in political science and I've been always very troubled by this data fetishism that is prevalent in political science. It is incredibly important, research, studies, we need that. But in addition to that, we need to understand that there are things in this life, like culture, like emotions, like perceptions, that can't be that easily transferred into numbers, measured you know, in clusters, and yet they matter. So I think what I'm trying to um, emphasize is that I think most of our clashes today are taking place in the field of culture. And we need to talk about these culture clashes that are taking place inside each and every country, including my own motherland, Turkey. And it worries me. There was a report in 2017 by the Freedom House, and it's emphasized that 35 countries had been making progress, which sounds like good news, but the next paragraph in the same report said 71 countries had been going backwards with a bewildering speed, you know, in unexpected ways. And as a writer, I also see its emotional impact on on people. Every time I go for a book festival or I do an event, almost always someone from the audience puts their hand up and says, you know, I come from Brazil, I come from Venezuela, I come from Egypt, I can't go back to my country anymore. Or people say, I cannot recognize my country anymore. So there's that growing long lists um, of maybe exiles of people who cannot recognize their countries anymore. It's interesting that for as you say, the all the data fetishization in one aspect of political science and all the introspection and introspection and conjecture from the 
left-wing liberal aspect of the media and political establishment. It's seemingly simplistic figures that have the greater ability to achieve emotional connection with the population. It's interesting that... Is it interesting that the ideas that seem more appealing are ones of nation, unity, exclusion, often negative emotions? Why do you think this is happening? Well, I think I make a distinction between information, knowledge, and wisdom. I think they're completely different things. And I believe, I think we live in an age in which we have a lot of information, and sadly, a lot of misinformation as well, about anything and everything. And information is very deceptive. First of all, we can't deal with too much information. Our, you know, our minds do not process it after a while. Our hearts do not feel it after a while. Whether it's 5,000 refugees, 500,000 refugees, we stop feeling, you know. So bombardment of information isn't knowledge, but it gives us the illusion of knowledge. If you ask me something that I'm not, uh, I don't know anything about, I don't, I, we, we've forgotten to say, I don't know. I just Google it, right? I Google it and in the next five minutes, I have an idea about that subject, which allows me to talk about that subject. But all I'm saying is that's not knowledge. Knowledge is something else. Knowledge, I think, requires us, to, first of all, to slow down. You know, you, you can't consume it with a fast pace. We can't just scroll it up and down. We really need to slow down. So in-depth analysis, books, that's why we need that kind of reading. And knowledge requires more critical thinking. But then there's wisdom, which in my opinion is something else altogether. So wisdom, in my opinion, requires to bring together the mind and the heart. And for wisdom, we need emotional intelligence, we need empathy, we need stories. So the heart also has to be involved in that kind of knowledge. So I believe we should lessen our information, increase our knowledge, and try to increase even further our wisdom. When I read the, um, the stories, the memoirs of people who have gone through the darkest chapters in human history, such as the Holocaust, such as all kinds of atrocities, civil wars, there's something almost all of them say again and again. Uh, to me, that's very important. They're saying, how is it possible that such dark atrocities take place? Is it because human beings are bad? They're not necessarily bad. Yes, there are some evil people, but their numbers are relatively very small. Then how is it possible that on such large scale, human beings can cause this much suffering? So in order to answer that question, the survivors always say the opposite of goodness is maybe not necessarily badness. It's maybe not necessarily evil or wickedness. They're saying the opposite of goodness is in fact numbness, is the moment we become desensitized indifferent to each other's stories, to each other's pain, the moment we stop feeling that kind of apathy. And this is what scares me because because we're bombarded with information, misinformation, constantly something is happening, it causes two reactions, either anger or apathy. And none of them can be our main energy source if we want to move forward. This state of numbness I is resonant for me the idea of disconnection disconnection from stimuli dis and a kind of an an, in an inactive inner state that is not um 
is not vital, lacking in vitality. Now, I feel that it's very difficult when people are deluged, as you say, with information to expect them to connect in the way that we might have done with... Uh, you know, when you give in that the image of your grandmother telling you folk tales, oral folk tales, and an understanding of a, a of a hero, and an understanding of a people, and an understanding of purpose and meaning and connection, and this is who we are, and this is where we're from, and this is where we're going, and I, your grandmother, who you love and who you trust in this country that we belong to, I'm telling you. You know, this feels to me like a, a, a long time ago. This feels archaic. It feels prehistoric. It feels... Irre not irrelevant, it's powerful and very beautiful. But what I'm saying is that compared to the age that you have described, I feel it's difficult for people to get access to that kind of emotion. If the purpose of story is to connect us to some kind of meaning, some kind of fidelity, some kind of frequency of truth to align us with some deeper purpose that is so easy to get abstracted from by the sort of the easy trauma of the everyday continually corralling us, marshalling us ever more into mundanity and disconnectedness and numbness. The function of story to, to reconnect us, to reawaken this music within us. I feel, how can people have access to that when we're being inundated with uh, and, uh, ideas around of globalism that are undergirded by corporatism, by commerce, that have no regard for the mystery, that have been uh, ultimate, uh, leveraged through rationalism, led to materialism and consumerism? Where is there an aperture for folk culture to re-enter? In a sense, you know, the reason perhaps that Steve Bannon has more traction than you is because they're partly what he's saying is true you know country America Hungary England something at least something not this endless nothing how do we ever counter that so we I talk about human rights freedom of speech women's rights um, the rights of sexual minorities, for equality, talk about rule of law, separation of powers. And people like Viktor Orban in Hungary, they call themselves, they call these things liberal blah, blah, blah. Right? They brush them aside. And this is the cultural clash that I'm talking about. We need to understand that we have lots of problems, inequalities that we honestly deal with, need to deal with. And in that regard, I think we also need to respect storytelling stories because what does literature f tell us? It gives us cognitive flexibility. It says, put yourselves, put yourself in the shoes of another person for a few hours, for a few days, and try to see the reality through the eyes of that person. How would you feel had you been born in a very different part of this country, of the world, into a different family? So in a way, I think storytelling asks us to transcend our identity and not be that sure of our own truths. And I think that's a very good intellectual exercise, if not also a very good spiritual exercise. Now, what does that mean in the political landscape? I think it means, first of all, rather than retreating into echo chambers, in, rather than going into our tribes, we need to go beyond and think about the gaps think about where we are disconnected. 
There are lots of problems, this disconnect between the countryside and the cities, between generations, the fractures. There is a reason why all the populist demagogues all around the world love polarization. They love to divide societies between us versus them. They benefit from that duality. And I think progressive-minded people need to go beyond that duality. Because the duality they're imposing on us is such an artificial construct. Now, what does Trump say? Remember, in one of his speeches, he said, for me, the important thing is to unite the people. And then the next line, he said, as for the other people, they don't really matter. Who are, who are the other people? It could be immigrants, it could be Muslims, Jews, women, anyone, for whatever reason, could be labeled as the other people. Populism always divides. They pretend that the people is a monolithic whole. It has only one voice, one view, and they pretend that they represent that view. In my opinion, I think this very fundamental duality that they are always talking about, people versus elite, let's unpack that. What do they mean by that? I think populists, if you look at their lives, I think they don't have a big issue with inequality. They don't have a problem with elitism as long as they are the elite, as long as they can be the new elite. But it's not really inequality that they have an issue with. So that's why I'm saying populism is the fake answer to some real problems. We need to go back to the problems. We can do two things at the same time. Be very critical of populist demagogues and how they're trying to benefit from the existing inequalities and anxieties of our times, but at the same time, connect with the people. People who think differently, speak differently, listen to them, listen to what they're saying. We have to do that, go beyond our tribes. We cannot um, think that we know better. So for me, it's very essential to talk to people, to listen to people, to communicate with people of all backgrounds, but at the same time, be very vocal and open in our criticism of the populist demagogues who are trying to benefit from the situation. So I think I have less respect. I mean, I, I, mean I, I, I hear when you say um, Steve Bannon is right, but no, Steve Bannon is not right. This bifurcation uh, upon which polarity depends, of what is it analogous in the human psyche? Why so appealing? Why so appealing to an individual to accept these ideas? How do they land in us? What is this resonance? What is the resource upon which it calls? And how could it be overridden? Well, don't you think we're so anxious? I mean, when I listen to young people of very different age groups, I think there is a lot of anxiety and maybe much more than previous generations. Um, people are genuinely worried. There's a lot of uncertainty. Um, no one can be sure that in 10 years time you're going to have the same job. So even if that's, that's the problem with statistics, if you only look at the economic um, level, you, you, that is not enough because just to give you one example, 21 out of the 22 states where Trump got most of his votes are states in America that are most prone to automation. So that means you might have a job today, but if you have the anxiety that you might lose your job in the next 10 years or 20 years, that's incredibly important. 
or else if you have a job today but if you're worried that your children might not have the same job opportunities or education opportunities again that's incredibly important so we need to talk about anxiety we need to talk about emotions we need to talk about demographic changes i mean there are lots of issues i think that maybe liberals progressives are not talking about enough and we need to do a better job in in terms of addressing these inequalities i've noticed that the debate uh, the debate on the side of the opposition to the rise of the populism is mostly merely a yearning to return to what immediately preceded a figure like Trump, neglecting that submerged in those moments, the administration of Barack Obama, was the tendency that we've now seen realised towards Trump. My personal feelings is that... uh, whilst I find little to disagree with in your admittedly truncated critique of populism in the conversation we're having today, is that the real failure is the disingenuity of the apparently progressive left and its neglect of ordinary people. It's the breakdown of the pact between the, shall we call it the bourgeoisie, the intelligentsia, and ordinary working people. The willingness to abandon the majority of ordinary white working class, not necessarily white, indigenous native people, you know. I feel that this created the territory. So you said a couple of times, Elif, the, you know, the, it's the problems that have led to populism that need to be addressed. What do you think about the failings of the preceding uh, neoliberal establishment? I think it is possible to be very... Um, critical of neoliberalism and we should be in my opinion because the the damage that it has created is enormous and at the same time appreciate or support or defend liberal democracy liberal pluralistic democracy these are very different things and i find it very um, sad sometimes that sometimes we put them in the same basket but they're very different things in my opinion neoliberalism with its greed to apply market um, principles to every inch of our lives, from school, from education, to health, to social services, spread it into every inch of of daily life. That kind of greed and the inequalities that that caused. You know, we need to be very honest and critical of that. And there are many political scientists who have been saying, actually, neoliberalism destroys democracy, destroys liberal democracy. You know, they were very, very right. But what I'm trying to say is, coming from a country like Turkey, um, liberal democracy is important. And to have a ballot box is not enough to sustain a democracy. In Turkey, we had elections. We had a ballot box, and yet we've been going backwards um, with, you know, in a very fast way, first gradually, but then with a bewildering speed. So how did that happen? I think in, in addition to the ballot box, you definitely need rule of law, checks and balances, definitely a free, independent media. I worry when the media is so much under attack. You and I, we can criticize journalists, we can criticize the media. Of course, there are lots of things to improve, but it's incredibly important as an institution. When the media diversity and media freedoms are lost, the decline is very fast. 
And then in addition to media freedoms, I think an independent academia, women's rights, minority rights, LGBT rights, together with all these components, a democracy can survive. So when you look at the populace, most of them are anti-liberal, anti-pluralistic. They don't like to think of society as, you know, a congl- like a collectivity of lots of different voices. They pretend it's just one single monolithic thing, which is not true. Um, but in the long run, I think they're anti-democratic. I think they're also very anti-intellectual. There is this over-romanticization of the people in every populist discourse when we scratch the surface, over-romanticization of the woke, right? And also, I think, quite anti-feminist as well. There is a backlash against women's rights and minority rights. So all of that I find very worrisome. My point is we can be very critical of neoliberalism, at the same time defend pluralistic liberal democracy. These are completely different things. Perhaps the rage felt towards neoliberalism is somewhat fueled by the idea that the uh, apparent pluralism was merely a veneer behind which the intentions of the powerful could continue to be met, that it wasn't costly to afford the apparently progressive agenda to continue because it didn't affect the interests of the powerful. So uh, what I feel is that it's, it's very the way we like pursue the idea of like you know like pluralism and diversity and the rights for you know like with the example you gave earlier of Audrey Lord was it that you know that people can identify in many many ways and that our identity is not static that a human being is more an event than an object continually alter in moment to moment what is the self what is the self how is it achieved what's the point in the bloody thing how why are we trying to why are we accepting these overt pre-existing structures why are we trying to achieve equality within pre-prescribed structures rather than altering those structures entirely why pursue the national project why pursue centralization why pursue the, the these products of mm, patriarchy neoliberalism classical thought why pursue them when we now know where they lead I'm not pursuing them. I'm actually very critical of them. Also, the the national project, I mean, all kinds of nationalism is not close to my heart at all. Uh, just the opposite. You see, I come from a country that has lost its cosmopolitan heritage, that has lost its diversity, that almost never appreciated diversity. And I think by losing that, we have lost a lot. I'm not only talking about a financial loss, economic loss, political loss, almost something in our conscience was gone. And I'm worried when today diversity is used as if it's a negative thing. I'm not saying it's easy, but it is a treasure. You know, if you have a city like London, where you have people from all ethnic backgrounds, national backgrounds, living together, sharing the same civic space, that to me is a treasure, something we need to appreciate, improve, work on. But in my opinion, this is the key. For a long time, we thought democracy is quite solid, safe, steady. You just don't need to put effort into it. But we have to. 
Maybe it is a far more delicate ecosystem than we realized. And we need to put effort in order to keep it alive. Because in my opinion, unlike the predictions of 2000s, history can go backwards. So it's not true that it always has to go forward. And again, when I look at the predictions of political scientists back then, they used to talk about certain countries being immune to the rise of the far right. One of those countries was Germany, because the idea was, well, after having experienced the horrors of the Holocaust, how can they ever make the same mistake again? So Germany, and also because it has, it has come to terms with its past, let's say, right? It's not censored, the past. So it's not something that they're not talking about, they are talking about. So political scientists were saying, in Germany, we won't see the rise of far right. The second country that was thought to be immune was Spain. Because after having experienced Franco, and uh, the, the Spanish people are so appreciative of democracy. The third country that was thought to be inoculated against far right was Sweden because it's the bastion of welfare state, social democracy, and the fourth country that political scientists, we would never see the rise of the far right, is the UK, because it has such a solid tradition of liberal democracy, so much so that it doesn't even need a written constitution. But all I'm saying is, there's no guarantee, you know? Look at Germany, look at Spain with the Vox movement, look at Sweden, you know, and, and the rise of the far right. They have a populist nationalistic party with direct links to neo-Nazi ideology. So we can't say we're immune. No country is immune to the rise of toxic politics in the age we're living in. No, uh, yeah, clearly. And if I feel that this appetite to mobilize people, inverted commas, ordinary people, the idea that power structures can alter, that people can have agency in their own lives, freedom in their own lives, freedom from fear, freedom to raise a family, participate in community. These, for me, seem essential, if we can say that anything is essential anymore, if there can ever be uh, ulterior Turkey expressing itself, you know, through time, through space. I'm interested, Elif, in your views on Sufism. It's not a subject that I know very much about. Can you tell me some stuff about it? Well, I, uh, I became interested in um, mysticism, actually, in my early 20s when I was a student in university. And it wasn't something that I had seen around me, but I had started reading about it. And one book led to another and then another um, I started reading about Shems, Shems of Tabriz, Rumi, Ibn Arabi. And because it's such a vast ocean, in my opinion, if you're interested in Islamic mysticism, you can easily find yourself reading about Jewish mysticism. And as you keep reading about Jewish mysticism, you can easily find yourself reading about Christian mysticism. The way I see it, there are no boundaries. And I honestly think if you brought the mystics of different traditions together around the same dinner table, I honestly think they would break bread together. So like someone like Meister Eckhart, someone like Rabia, Rumi, um, you know, Isaac Luria, Te Teresa de Avila, these people had something in common. They lived in different ages, different places, but their quest was very similar. Now that said, personally, I I'm not a believer. 
I'm not a religious person. I'm just someone who's curious about faith, but I'm equally curious about doubt. And I think they need to go hand in hand. We should not try to separate them. So my problem with people who are religious is that they're trying to get rid of doubt. But faith without doubt is a dogma, and dogmas are very dangerous. On the other hand, my problem with people who are strictly, rigidly atheist is that they want to get rid of faith. But I think there are so many different acts of faith in our lives and also secular acts of faith as well. For instance, when you move to a new country without quite knowing what you're doing, that's a secular act of faith. When you start writing a novel, you have no idea where that story is going to take you. It's a secular act of faith. When you fall in love with someone, you don't know if that person is going to make you happy in life, but you follow this weird urge, right? Something irrational. That's a secular act of faith. So there are acts of faith that are not religious. That's all I'm trying to say. And that is why I've never felt close to certainty. I don't like certainty. I like people who say, you know what, I'm still working on it. I'm still thinking. I'm still on some journey, changing. So I think I've always felt closer to agnostics and also to mystics who, are, who were a little bit of misfits, just on the edge of their traditions, walking a very thin line between faith and doubt. Those people were very interesting. And there's a part of me that wants to remember that philosophy because most of that philosophy um, or the, the questions that they raised have been either censored or forgotten or erased. So I'm not, a, as I said, believer myself, but I'm a liberal, I'm a progressive-minded person who is interested in faith. And I think, again, people on my side of the political spectrum haven't put enough thought into faith. I think faith is way too important to leave to the ultra-religious. I think patriotism is way too important to leave to nationalists. I also think the tech world is way too important to leave solely to tech companies. And I also think politics is way too important to leave it only to career politicians. So in all these fields, I think we have to become more engaged, more, more um, committed, you know, part of the conversation. Yes. If there is a corollary to the findings of mystics across traditions, is what interests you the possibility that there is, whilst I take your point about certainty, if you say that Rumi and Meister Eckhart and mystics of, across traditions have at least a timbre, a tone, something that seems similar, is part of the appeal that the sense that there, that there isn't the point of mysticism, that there is a, a access to a truth that is super material? The way I see it, of course, everyone interprets mysticism in a different way. And actually, the Sufis used to say there are as many paths to God as the number of hearts beating for God. So that, again, plurality, multiplicity, you should not try to dictate, unlike orthodoxies, you know, that are saying my way is the right way and everybody should follow my way. There's room for multiplicity in a proper mystical philosophy, in my opinion. Um, but what I like is, first of all, they say, that when you look, look at the mystics of the past ages, and, and I always talk about history because there are people who call themselves Sufis today, but in my opinion, they can be just as patriarchal, just as hierarchical as the rest of the society. So I, I don't romanticize anyone, but I'm interested in the philosophy itself. I'm interested in the poetry 
of mysticism. And when I read that poetry, they what they're saying, these ancient mystics, is whatever exists outside of me also exists inside me. Maybe, you know, in smaller degrees or in bigger degrees. That also means don't be too harsh when you judge other people. Maybe you're upset at someone because that person is very jealous. Well, you know what? You have a degree of jealousy inside you too. Don't forget. So that is a very beautiful philosophy. Uh, it's much more inward looking rather than fighting with other people. You have to be very much aware of your own ego and how that can keep blocking your way. And there's also a sense of connectivity in mystical thought. We're all connected. So if there was um, if there w was a geometrical shape to symbolize mystical thought, I think it would be a circle, because in a circle every little point is at equal distance from the from the center. So the idea is we're all part of this whole. And we're all creating meaning together. I'm not superior to the tree. I'm not superior to anyone else. It's not hierarchical. It's it's much more egalitarian. And there's room for gender equality. So those are the things that I like. But as I said, without over-romanticizing, just to remember. Um, one more po po point, maybe. When I read people like Ibn Arabi, he has this beautiful poem. They They ask him, you know, what's your religion? And in answer to that question, he says, I follow the caravan of love. He says, if the caravan goes to a mosque, I will go inside the mosque, I will pray inside the mosque, the mosque is my abode of prayer. But the caravan will continue. Maybe next stop will be a synagogue, and then we'll be praying inside a synagogue, I will be. And then we will stop by a church, and I will go and, and light a candle inside the church. You know, I, I'm just telling you as I remember the poem. But the caravan will continue. Then we will pass through a desert, and I will pray in the desert. Then through a forest, then I will pray in, inside the forest. What he says is, the journey is endless. So that is why there's a big difference between organized religions and personal, inward-looking spirituality. Because the latter um, is a very individual quest. You know, you might start up as a Buddhist, you might, up, you, you might end up as a Christian mystic or the other way around. Who am I to judge you? You know, it's your personal story. Organized religions are not close to my heart. I think they divide humanity constantly into us versus them. And there is the assumption that us is closer to truth than them. But spirituality on this individual basis, in my opinion, is something else. And everyone's search is unique like our fingerprints and no one has the right to judge someone else's journey how i wonder if there are principles that emerge from mysticism such as you uh you know uh, collectivism interconnectivity pluralism uh, if these principles can be reliably derived from mystical experience how can they be applied to the creation of our systems and structures without some form of collaboration and organization? I uh, take a point about orthodoxies and the problems incumbent within institutionalization. But if we are to create genuinely new systems where people are viscerally invested in some of the ideas that you've discussed beyond tolerance, because of course tolerance implies a kind of inner resistance, but uh, 
sort of welcoming love of pluralism uh, and acceptance that there, if there is no destination for the individual, then there is no destination for the state. There is a continuum, that there is no static, certain United Kingdom, no static Turkey, that the narrative will alter and reflect continually changing states. How can these ideas be represented without some kind of impetus, some kind of organisation? Because like, I feel that what happens is that conversations like this one, you know, this will exist in a kind of a particular media space, probably for, you know, like this is, I don't imagine there's many people that are that interested in populism that would listen to this podcast. It's kind of for liberal, progressive people, I guess, people that are interested in spirituality, hopefully autodidacts. My, my, my hope is that anyway. How do we how do we rouse, inspire and connect with the kind of passions that are accessed by the people who evoke your concern? Well, to me, the, the core of all these arguments is I believe in equality. I believe that all human beings are equal, free and no one has the right to impose any kind of discrimination against anyone else. Whether you want to take a mystical path or a political path, this is the core, right? That kind of sense of justice, sense of equality, diversity, inclusion. These are core issues for me. And it, and it troubles me, especially when I travel um, in places like Turkey, but also all across the Middle East, more and more, you will hear people saying, you know what, maybe democracy is not our thing. Maybe it's a Western concept. It really doesn't suit our part of the world. And that's a very dangerous turning point. Democracy is losing its appeal. And I think we should all be concerned about that. The way I see it, democracy is not a Western concept. It's not a Eurocentric invention. I think it's a universal concept. Whether you live, you live in the West or East, North and South, we all deserve to live in open societies with egalitarianism, right? In societies in which our differences can be embraced, understood, appreciated, and we, where we all find an equal voice. So in other words, when we talk about issues like human rights, minority rights, these are not Western concepts. That is part of the struggle in the Middle East, for instance, right? Um, I always want to see it as, as a universal phenomenon. And I am a storyteller. My approach, everyone's method is different. The way I approach is, I always try to understand who are the people who are pushed to the periphery? What are the stories that I haven't heard? And how is it possible that we haven't heard these stories? So there's a part of me, whether I'm talking about history or today, that always wants to go towards people who, for whatever reason, have been othernized. That is why in my books, minorities always play an important role. Maybe I want to bring the periphery to the center, maybe to turn that power hierarchy upside down and give more voice to people who have been voiceless and try to remember the stories that have been erased and forgotten. You know, that's, that's how I do it. And I have many readers, to be honest with you, who are quite xenophobic because in Turkey in particular, um, I have a very diverse readership. And some of my readers come from very conservative backgrounds. And if you ask their opinions in the public space, if you ask their opinions about Armenians, Jews, Greeks, Kurds, Alevis, 
because these are the main minorities in Turkey. They might tell you lots of negative things because that is the only narrative they have heard at school, in their family, from TV. Equally, I have lots of homophobic readers. Turkey is a very patriarchal, very homophobic country. And again, if you ask these people their opinion about sexual minorities, you might hear lots of biases and prejudices. But then these people, some of them at least, they come to me and they say, you know what, I've read your book, and this is the character that I love the most. And maybe the character they're talking about is Armenian or Jewish or Greek. Or maybe the p character that they love the most is gay or bisexual or transgender. So there is a part of me that thought about this a lot. How is it possible that people who are more judgmental in the public space, when they are alone, when they're reading a novel, they become a little bit less biased, a little bit more open to connect with the other. And I don't think that's a coincidence. It's not a coincidence because imagine fascism is a collectivistic disease. You need synchronized energy, everyone chanting at the same time, erasing individuality. What stories do, in my opinion, they restore our individuality. They give it back to us. They say, you're not part of a tribe. You are a unique human being. And let me tell you the story of another unique human, human, human being. And there's a better chance of feeling connected and empathy in that inner space. So I think I do believe that stories rehumanize people who have been dehumanized in the political mainstream discourse. What is this book about that you have just written, please, Elif? So my latest novel is called 10 Minutes 38 Seconds in a Strange World. And uh, it's the story of a sex worker in Istanbul. Right at the beginning, we do know that she has been brutally killed and the body has been dumped in a garbage can, in a bin. The first two words in this novel actually are the end. Um, maybe I should tell you how I started writing it. I became very interested in this series of scientific studies that show after the moment of death, after the heart has stopped beating, the human brain remains active for another few minutes. Especially in Canada, doctors have observed persistent brain activity for about 10 minutes in dead patients. And so I wanted to add my own 38 seconds to that. And the question that I wanted to ask was what exactly happens inside our brains, inside our minds in that limited amount of time? And if it is true that the part of the brain that is in charge of memory is the last bit to shut down, what do we remember? What do dead people remember? The good things or the bad things? So right away we meet this sex worker who, as I said, has been killed, but her brain is active. Her name is Leila, and as Leila remembers her past, minute by minute by minute. We travel into her story, but also the story of Turkey and a little bit the story of the Middle East told through the eyes of outcasts. Maybe the second place that I need to mention, um, and this is a real place, it's called the Cemetery of the Companionless. That would be the literal translation. Um, this is an actual graveyard on the outskirts of Istanbul. I became very interested in this place years ago. Unlike any other cemetery, in this place, there are no tombstones, there are no names, no surnames, only numbers. It is a place where actual people are turned into numbers. And when you do research about the people who've been buried there, all of them have been somehow either rejected by their families, 
or they are lost or missing citizens. So for instance, there are lots of LGBTQ members buried there. Lots of people have died of AIDS throughout the 1980s, 90s. They have been buried there, only numbers. Um, there are abundant babies that have been found uh, on the streets. They have ended up there, but also lots of refugees. We always read about refugees who have drowned either in the Aegean Sea or the Black Sea while trying to cross to Europe. But where are all these bodies taken? They're taken to the cemetery of the Companions. So it is a very sad place in which an Afghan refugee or a Syrian refugee might be buried next to a Kurdish sex worker or a Turkish um, person who has committed suicide. And I think as an author, I wanted to take at least one of those numbers, because in the story my character is buried there, I wanted to take one of those numbers and give it a name, give it a surname, a story, an individuality, and try to reverse that process. Hmm. That's a, a very beautiful idea. I went to a when they were excavating the ground in south london to extend the jubilee line they happened upon a pauper's graveyard and i went once because it you know they were renovating it or wanted to sanctify or consecrate the ground in some way it was interesting to consider you know a few hundred years ago that I don't know, man. We all end up under the ground, but without ritual, without ceremony, without exactly. narrative. Exactly. I suppose you feel that's a, f a final act of dehumanization. and dehumanization, indeed, yeah. You're a very intense person, are you? What's your personal life like? You've got a couple of kids. You wrote about postnatal depression. Yes, You're I married did. to, is your husband a, a writer? Uh, he's, a, he's a journalist, yes. I am... Um, I think I see myself as a nomad maybe all my life has been at least intellectually, physically as well. I lived in very different parts of the world. I write both in English and Turkish. What do you write uh, this in first? Um, I, I wrote it in English first. For the last 15 years, I think, if, yeah, if I remember correctly, I've been writing in English first. But my earlier novels were written in Turkish first. And then there came a moment when I switched to writing in English. And that was very scary because I'm an immigrant and English for me is an acquired language. There are millions of people who feel the same way that, you know, I feel. We always make mistakes. There are lots of words I can't pronounce. Every day with my kids, we practice squirrel, you know, squirrel, squirrel, I can't pronounce. And the English can be a tough language because it doesn't abide by the, you know, rules. I started learning English uh, around the age I was 10 years old. Back then I was in Spain. Spanish was my second language. But English never abandoned me. Um, and there was a big reaction in Turkey when I f started writing in English because I was an established author back then in Turkey. So some people, nationalists, they said, oh, well, she has abandoned her mother tongue. She can't be called a Turkish writer anymore. And I think that's the, one of the many problems with nationalism. For them, everything is either or. For me, you can dream in more than one language, you know, and the mind does. Sometimes we start to dream in one language and we ended up in another because the human brain doesn't draw these distinctions. And I do feel very attached to the Turkish language. My connection with the Turkish language is very emotional. I think with the English language, my connection is more cerebral. And I'm an emotional person. 
and uh, it balances me. It gives me a sense of freedom writing in another language. There's an interesting study by the University of Chicago um, that shows we think more rationally when we express ourselves in another language. So I find that very interesting. We change as we commute between languages. Even our voice changes, our, the intonation, our body language, because language shapes us. Um, but if I may add this, as I said, I love the Turkish language, but I've always been critical of the way the Turkish vocabulary has been narrowed down. Because imagine this was in the past, the Ottoman Empire was a multilingual, multi-ethnic, multi-religious empire. As a result, the language, the syntax was Turkish, but the vocabulary came from all kinds of backgrounds. Um, there were lots of Turkish words, but also Arabic words, Persian words, Armenian, Ladino, Greek, Albanian words within the vocabulary. When we Turkified our language, around 45% of that vocabulary was taken out because it was not ethnically Turkish. Now, when I hear you speak English and you use words like chutzpah or you use words like kismet, and nobody says, wait a minute, that's a Jewish word, let's take it out. That's an Arabic word, kismet, let's take it out. Nobody says that. They're all part of the English language organically. There's a part of me that appreciates that, you know, coming back to diversity. It is a good thing for a language, and languages shape the way we think if we can keep the nuances and keep the diversity alive. So in a nutshell, I think um, writing in English keeps me maybe a little bit more maybe courage or maybe a sense of freedom, an additional space, and I, and I cherish that. But I also work very closely with my translator who translates my works into Turkish, and I take the Turkish translation and I rewrite it, which is a bit insane. So in a way, you spend twice as much time commuting back and forth between languages. Do you ever find distinctions that are irreconcilable? I find words that are very difficult to carry from one language to the next. If I'm not mistaken, it was Salman Rushdie who said, if you want to get to know a culture better, you have to pay more attention to those untranslatable words. Why is it like that? And so, yeah, sometimes it makes you pause. You know, you can't find um, the word. Jokingly, I, I say, um, we Turks, there are two things we don't do well. One of them is optimism and the other one is irony. So I think if my writing has melancholy, sadness, sorrow, longing, I find these things much easier to express in Turkish. But when it comes to humor and irony in particular, I find it much easier to express it in English. I suppose the English language has been such a powerful colonizing force for such a long time. It can incorporate vocabulary the same way as it's incorporated nations for centuries without any kind of sense of its own fragility or insecurity that by continually expanding its boundaries it's behaving in accordance with its own imperial agenda that's a, an argument that could be made and perhaps yeah. turkey yeah. that's had such fragility around its sovereignty and has transmuted and yeah. continues to sort of alter identity yeah. perhaps indeed I, I of course and also i think today there's so many authors who are writing in English, but they're coming from either ex-colonies, historically speaking, or from the peripheries. And, and they, it's, it's a struggle because um, some people say, well, that's not proper English. But I think we have, we have something to contribute, you know, with, uh, with our own gaze and, and the differences that we bring 
maybe the rhythm that we bring. So again, I want openness in our approach to language as well. Hmm. Alif, thank you very much. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it was a very, uh, I would say, hmm, the conversation was very particular and very considered. I'm very grateful, but also I saw the uh, the melancholy and I'm also grateful to you for your openness and your continued work in providing voices from the margins. Thank you. Hmm. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Alif Shafak. Remember, let me know what you thought of it on Instagram. Tag me at Russell Brand or tweet me at Rusty Rockets with a hashtag under the skin. In the meantime, why don't you listen to some old ones? Lawrence Scott, Karamo Brown, all brilliant. Please sign up to my mailing list on russellbrand.com so I can communicate directly with you without the prying eyes of the government and the corporate Silicon Valley world that pays my wages. I don't think they, they are Silicon Valley, actually. Uh, so yeah do that and also you can watch my Netflix special Rebirth if you want thanks for listening to me Russell Brand on Under the Skin from Luminary Media I love you